This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you Johnny man? It's the Irish Times second captain's football podcast. Oh, my David Kieran Murphy and Ken Early are all here. They're hey, on the show, After another Champions League humbling for Manchester City, I quite enjoyed the angry tone of the TV analysis on RT last night. Now, when you have a Liam Brady, Ray Houghton and Kenny Cunningham on a panel together, a touch of anger is never a million miles away. But they captured the frustration that we all have as football fans when you're watching a really big team full of superstar players who look like they're not really bothered either. They'd love to win this game, but most of are just running. There's one clip that Kenny Cunningham showed of, uh, in fairness, they were, the players were making an effort here, but the effort was to compensate for a lack of a uh, proper tactical effort, really. Um, they're running back. They're all up front. Then they're all running back after the ball. And it really looks like a playground where you've got 10 kids just running around after after this round object. Really wanting to get a kick in. Mm, they weren't the only ones angry, though. One. Jimmy Redknapp was... Re- he was, was he? Oh. Did Jamie Redknapp savage Manchester City? He did. You know, a, a touch of rouge came to those tanned <laughs> cheeks. <laughs> he, got, he got so angry. At, what, did, uh, what was he saying? Uh, just, I just can't believe it. Really? Just can't believe it. Yeah, just baffled. Well, I mean, I can believe it. It's what they keep doing. Oh yeah, it's thoroughly believable. It's, I mean, the surprise would have been if they had um, sort of ripped the, uh, this game. Must go up. The um, the general tone of the, the Sky coverage himself, Niall Quinn and uh, Graham Sinus, yeah. was that uh, four months ago they stood on the pitch in the Etihad and declared these men kings of football, <laughs> and uh, just four months later they're a rabble, they're yeah. a wreck, they're a shambles. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, I, th- I think. Um, you know, I, 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 we shouldn't be that surprised if there was unanimity amongst the football pundits of the world last night, given just how bad uh, Manchester City Liam, Bra- Liam Brady's dream has been realised to be mentioned in the same breath as Jamie Redknapp as a TV pundit, I'm sure. Well, I feel, I feel like a bit of a plank as well, Owen. I, I mean, I'm suggesting Liam Brady's a plank uh, when I say as well. 
Yes, I mean, okay. He, just you know, just to clarify that. He's right. He appears to be right about um, about Manchester City. You know, there's not, nothing nothing to contradict him. But I sat here on Monday talking about Arsenal. They keep doing this to me. They just keep doing this to me. Every time I sit here and go, tell you what, Arsenal, quarter, Arsenal have got a chance. And they just, I mean, okay, I mean, their game was obviously the previous night, but it's right, just, yeah. you know, 3-0, three 3-all. Three it's 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 not a sign of a good side. Oh, no. I retract everything I said about the uh, the warrior mentality taking. Well, <laughs> taking they, wasn't, it the fir- wasn't the first goal that was the offside goal? It was ridiculously yeah. offside. Sh- shouldn't have counted. And Wenger was talking about it afterwards and predictably made that point that, it sh- that there was an offside goal. But then a, I don't think he was offside. Oh no! He, oh no! He wasn't. My life. was he? But then he uh, I thought he was behind the ball. But, but then the oh well okay so um, anyway. The point being that Wenger said that he was that the team. Well, maybe we lost our. I don't know if the composure was the right word, but he he was saying that essentially we, we kind of lost a little bit after that. You're still three one up at home against an average enough team. Mm. Why are you panicking? Just just, just oh, fate has conspired against yeah. us. It's inevitable now that we're going to concede two more goals on the back of this, with basically a consolation goal. I mean, it was fu- one of those where, where like the team was fired by but like by this goal, and he said, right, well, God. And look, have them on the ropes. It was just like regulation. We're three 0 up now. We're three one up. Doesn't really matter. Rarely, rarely matters. There was five of them upfield, like trying to trying to chase a four two in the last minute when they conceded the three three. So that's you know, I mean, you could blame Wenger for it. In fact, you should. You can blame Wenger for it. Uh, I mean, uh, you're probably wondering why I haven't mentioned Brendan Rodgers yet. The white feather. White feather. Uh, the white feather is what you used to. Um, is a, is, a, is a symbol of cowardice. Uh, young ladies, Owen, used to go up and when they would see an able-bodied man walking around in the streets of, of Britain and I think maybe France as well, uh, and the war was on, uh, the 1914-18 war, uh, and you've got this able-bodied young man walking around. Well, what are you doing? Why aren't you at the front? So they go and hand the young man a white feather, as, uh, which symbolised his pretty much the state of his manhood. Maybe uh, he was short-sighted. Yeah, maybe he had diabetes. Yeah. No, he probably didn't have diabetes because I don't think he would have been walking around uh, if this was the 1914-18 period, this being before the discovery of uh, insulin. Look, we don't need to go down that, that tangent, right? <laughs> but uh, it was like, you know, you're, you're, frankly, you're, you're a coward. I hold your manhood cheap and you should be at the front and this is what you deserve, this white feather. Now, I don't know if that Brendan Rodgers was literally handed one, but um, we're not we're not even going to talk about that. Owen. There's no point. We'll talk maybe on Monday because Liverpool are going to play Chelsea, and that's a big game, and it's sort of the second part of the story. Mm. We won't know yet. The with Jose Mourinho himself said, uh, "Look, it could be a genius decision. We don't know if Liverpool go out there and you know with their rested and invigorated players rip Chelsea to pieces, then maybe Brendan Rodgers mm. was right to." Um, I don't. I don't want to say quit on his stool. I mean, uh, it's like the. It's basically it's like the end of the Empire Strikes Back. You know, you 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 you're things are looking pretty bad. Pretty bad. Yeah, they're not. But look, yeah, who knows? There may still be, you know, a Return of the Jedi style happy ending. It could turn out to be a good move. But the point I was I, I started off thinking of here. Could, do you blame Arsene Wenger for the fact that they let in the three goals? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a thing in the Suarez book which I say Suarez is saying. I asked one of the Chelsea players, probably Aspilicueta. He doesn't. He doesn't name the player, but I. I think it was. I did, was Aspilicueta on the, on the field. We should check that. But he asked them, um, "What's going on here? Why this was when Chelsea played Liverpool and beat them two 0 Why? Why are you doing this? This is ridiculous. You're time wasting from the first minute. 
this is a joke. Why are you playing this way? Suarez says to the guy. Yeah. And the Chelsea player says, look, he's told us to play this way. What do you want me to do? I mean, am I going to like not play the way he says? This is what we're supposed to do today. And I'm going to do it. What would you do? Because if I don't do it, I won't play. What would you do? And Suarez is like, yeah, okay, fair point. <laughs> but, you know, there's a manager telling his team, play this way because I think this is going to be an effective strategy. You know, Arsene Wenger, maybe he's not controlling his team to the same extent. But is he telling them, I want 4-2. Don't, don't come back into this dressing room if the score is 3-2. I, you can only look at me in the eye if the score is 4-2. You've got to keep chasing in the 90th minute. Maybe he is telling them that. But if he was telling them to defend, maybe they'd defend and maybe they wouldn't let in that last minute goal. We'll get into Man City with Jonathan Wilson a little bit later on in the programme. And we're also going to hear from a man who's held a fairly lofty position at two of the top Premier League teams, Ken Damian Kamali. Is it Damien or Damien? Do we say Damien because it sounds like... I think it's Damien. Yeah. Um, you Because he's French. We'll Do go, French people say Damien? We'll go with Damien, who was the... Was it director of football, is the correct title? Director of football at, uh, at Liverpool. Uh, well, I don't know if they called him, but that was, that's effectively what he was. He and Kenny Dalglish were working together as a, as a partnership. Disastrously, some would say. that This was, the, this was what was the idea that was out there at the time, that you had this old-school football man, Kenny Dalglish, and this new wave, stats-driven, analytical, data-analytical guy, Damian Kamali, and they uh, just struggled to work together to buy particularly good players. Well, together, the idea was that it was going to be, um, you're going to have uh, a situation where you've got the best of the old school approach and the best of the new school approach. At least that's what it was sold as at the time. Did it go well? Well, Kamali was sacked quite quickly, and then Dalglish was sacked, and the whole approach was torn up. So... On the on the face of it, it didn't go that well. I mean, he's he's associated famously with the signing of Andy Carroll and Stuart Downing, and and, and we remember when these players came in and played that season under Dog Leash, they were they were you know absolutely pilloried, and these guys Downing and, and so on. But of course, he was also the guy. You know, they were also there when Luis Suarez was signed and Jordan Henderson turned out to be a bit better than people gave him credit for in the beginning, and even the the disasters like Downing and Carroll. Were sold on, and I suppose the the total outlay lay on them was uh, fifty five million pounds, and they only ended up getting back slightly over twenty million. So they lost they lost some money there, but they made some money on on Suarez, which covered that, I suppose. So was it bad? Was it good? Well, didn't those players turn out giving Liverpool Football Club a hell of a ride? Well, yeah, they well no, not not Danny and Carroll. <laughs> they were they were bad sightings. But Henderson and Suarez, they were part of a great uh, great season last season. We'll hear that interview in a little while. You were speaking to him at the Web Summit, which is going to feature quite heavily in Ken Early's Report on Sport. There's a couple of impressions I have of having spent a little bit of time listening to people talk at the Web Summit. Um, figures from sport, figures from, you know, around sport. There was a sports summit part of... The, do you want to explain to people... Does everyone know what the Web Summit is? People should know what it is. And if they don't know, they can go off and look at... You've been bombarded with it. If you're, certainly yeah, if you're online sure. in any way, uh, you've been bombarded with the Web Summit. Over you last probably days, know sure. what it is, so you don't need... But there was a sports summit uh, tent. It seemingly borrowed from Electric Picnic. Yeah. yeah, it was the Spiegel tent. <laughs> if anyone's... <laughs> it was happening in the Spiegel tent. It's a really strange uh, feeling walking into that I, thing. I looked in at the marketing summit and it was this. there was all this sort of purple and pink lighting and like these massive HD screens and this huge amphitheater of people or not amphitheater it was just a, a huge room of people um, and it, it all looked pretty high powered I turn up and it's the Spiegel t- I'm like that's the Spiegel tent I've been in there I don't think I've ever been in there sober right <laughs> I'm about to walk in here sober 
and see uh, for the first time. And I walk in and, you know, there's, there's a few people. I mean, the, 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 there was varying attendances depending on the profile. Of, I mean, Rio Ferdinand, I think, was getting the biggest crowd. Donald O'Cusack had a big crowd. He was on there before Rio. Um, Damien Camaldi had a big crowd. So if that doesn't get you excited about the, <laughs> the forthcoming interview with Mr. Camoli, um, you should you should listen up for that. But uh, but we went to see me and you Owen went to see a few uh, a few guests and a few of them had, had interesting things to say. One of them was Colm O'Neill, the um, chief executive of BT in Ireland. I don't know, well BT in Ireland. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, BT yeah. Ireland. Yeah. So he had he was on. Um, he was on a panel with a couple of other guys talking about... Uh, one of the guys was, was from The Score in Canada. Um, and, you know, another guy was had to do with this world of TV rights. Uh, the first question I remember was, is there a bubble in TV rights? I mean, it seems to, you know, the, the value of TV rights has the momentum of a runaway freight train. Will anything ever bring it to a halt? Or is the train in this question, like that train, Snowpiercer, which never stops? Because <laughs> most trains stop, right? Yeah. No, that wasn't the actual question, but that was effectively what was being asked. Not a chance. The first guy said, not a chance. These sports rights just go up. Colin O'Neill sort of, you know, shifted a little bit and seemed. He said, well, you know, I'm from Ireland. I spent a bit of time in Ireland over the last few years. And, you know, I guess if you're from Ireland, you sometimes think bubbles happen. Mm. You're always wondering. It's kind of there be? in the back of, your, back of your mind, all right. But we don't see anything to suggest this is a bubble at the moment. Uh, so anyway, the, the interesting point came at this when he was talking about ways, and I mean, they're, they're talking about ways in which podcasts are always seeking to um, enhance the the experience for the viewer. They're trying to get an edge on each other, you know. Um, how can you make your presentation more compelling than the next guy? And one of the things was uh, augmented reality. I shifted in my seat myself. I was like, hmm. I he's not what just he's talking, talking about, about the, the little Moyes box in the BT coverage. Of no, <laughs> it's Moyes not just watch. the Moyes terror cam. <laughs> <laughs> no, he said, imagine I'm a quarterback. It shouldn't be too difficult for you to do, given my physique. Everyone was Classic. like, that's good. But he said, imagine I'm a quarterback in the NFL. I'm wearing my visor. And on the inside of my the screen of my visor, I've got all this, uh, essentially, I am the Terminator. I've got, I see the... Um, you know, the match that I'm playing in, but I also have overlaid all of this information about what's going on. So I get the ball, it's in my gloves. You know, I'm kind of moving back in a position, but I get a signal on my left side. There's someone coming. There's a guy about to smash me from the left, but effortlessly, because I know he's there, I sort of uh, shift back, just dodge out of his way without even having to turn my head because I'm I'm analyzing what's going on over here, which where I've also got some information on my visor saying, highlighting a particular area of the turf where into which a wide receiver that I can't actually see, but is there in the the system. It's an Oculus Rift type system, I should say. Well, oh no, hang on. Did Oculus Rift come in at this point or the point where the fan went out? Anyway, point is I throw the ball. I still have to do that myself. The visor is not going to do that for me. I don't have a cybernetic arm. I don't think I do. Not yet. Um, but I, I throw the ball with my human arm towards this area where, where I didn't know the guy was going to come. I suppose that's often the case in real NFL yep. situations because, you know, you're executing a pre-planned play. But the point is, bang, the guy catches the ball, uh, skips to the end line. It's a touchdown. Right. Yeah. So that's one of the ways in which technology can actually affect what's happening in-game. But then the fan, 
or any one of those fans of the stadium, or even the fans who aren't in the stadium, can download the my visor's information, which will include everything I saw and everything I was shown to their own equivalents, which I guess they have to buy that thing. But hey, that's that's not necessarily any bad thing if they have to buy that piece of equipment, millions and millions of them. And um, and they can experience the whole thing from my perspective, the, the QB's perspective. They can go through that whole game. I love the second part of that idea. Yeah. I love the idea as a supporter that you could actually do that. Uh, you're getting in, almost inside the brain of the mm. of the quarterback. But the first part of it... It sits a bit uneasily with me. This I mean, not, I, I'm thinking. Right. I'm thinking. We all remember Krang from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? Of course. Yes. This sort of brain-like substance yeah. controlling this robot outer shell that he had. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, that's what I'm thinking is going on here. Yeah. I mean, what is who? That's essentially, that's essentially Tom Brady. You don't need to be an athlete. You don't need to be Tom Brady anymore. You don't necessarily. You, you just need to be very good at following orders. Following order, orders that are delivered. Screen. Well, look, that's the message of the of the web summit, in a sense. You know, you don't. I mean, I thought. You know, what was the point of of trying to find stuff out? What was the point of learning about stuff? I was being the augmented reality is something I was shown there the other night. You know, the guy was like, "Check this out." You know, uh, daiquiri, not like banana daiquiri, not spelled that way, but D A Q or I. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, look, it's augmented reality. Because I, I I literally said that thing. I said, "What is it like to drink?" And this guy who obviously worked for them happened to be standing just next to me, and he said, "No, I'll show you what it is." And he took out this, this kind of little, uh, like a badge-sized object, and he started focusing his phone on it. He's like, watch. And then he was like, the Wi-Fi here doesn't work. <laughs> so I can't, I, can't, I can't show you. But the point is that when, when, you, when he, uh, essentially he shows, his, he gets the phone to focus on some device, and then before you know it, all this information is there about it. You don't have to know anything about anything to know everything about everything. <laughs> it appears to be the promise. I was looking at this with... Hatred and fear. I was like, but what's the point? I've, I've read books. I feel like I've wasted my time in my life. Wait, you tell me that was all a waste of time? This is, you're, t- you're telling me my mind is just like an old woman's house. You know, she thinks it's well furnished. Everyone else is like, nah, it's just fully useless bric a brac. You know, if it had a new owner, they would just throw this out. You know, they'd throw out the, the wallpaper and the furniture and all the, they'd just throw it out. It's, this is useless, useless stuff. It's useless to everyone. We should get back to the sports summit. Um, yeah, and what you I know you were quite taken by the one of your takeaways from McKen was yeah. how how much fun it used to be to be a sports person compared to today when you're just logging all this information and it's uh, getting to be a bit like hard work. It's just getting to be a bit like hard work. I mean, Guy Easterby was there, the the CEO of Leinster Rugby the ma- manager. Yeah, manager. He was saying, um, you know, talking about how the guys come in and they fill out these forms talking about how well they slept and stuff like this, you know, and, you know, how do you feel for later four? And I kind of like, do they really have to do that? Are you serious? I mean, obviously, you, this is all valuable, valuable information. You've got a, it's a longitudinal study of how well Rob Kearney is sleeping. You know, mm-hmm. how well did he sleep on Tuesday? How well did he sleep on Wednesday? How well did he sleep on Thursday? Last week, last month, last year. Well, Leicester Rugby know that now. Mm-hmm. But of course, he has to fill out these forms. Maybe he's happy to do it. In the past, they didn't used to have to fill out the forms. Being a rugby player was more about being this kind of uh, a, a big jock superhero who was just better than the men around him, you know? <laughs> you didn't have to fill out forms. Um, but that's, that's, that's the kind of reality. It's not, I'm not saying it's like being, uh, you know, a cross between a lab rat and a sort of a futuristic priest. 
uh, as a sportsman. But there is a lot of this, there's a, there's a lot of um, extra responsibility. Paul there. Galvin wrote about that in his book, uh, recently published book, particularly about the the social media, social media element, but the, the how tech-savvy all the young players are now, mm. how they log everything, how they have their app. and like, well, you're, you're, So essentially, they're, they're putting their sleep patterns into their app, their nutrition, their training, all those sorts of things. And uh, Gavin didn't come in too hard on that because he's a guy who's taught long and hard over his years mm. about how to maximise himself, his body, his mind as a player, all those things. Um, but he, he, did, he did kind of give the impression that... It's not much fun yeah. anymore. That part of it's all, not much fun. Yeah. Galvin was also a man who travelled to training with Darrow O'Shea for nine or ten years. <laughs> so he's, let's just say he's, he's experienced both sides of the approach to sports science. Richard Arnold, Murph? Uh, well, I don't, I don't want to get to him just yet, Owen, because there was, there, I mean, the, another thing Easterby said was about, the, was about the sort of social media aspect and sponsors are going to be looking at your social media footprint, you know, and, and how you're engaging with your fans. And this is kind of, there's so much responsibility. There's so many things that you're supposed to do now. The sponsors and, and it's kind of how much are you willing to trade off for money? Well, it's sort of why are you doing this? Why, why are you doing this? And the answer is obviously, well, you can make more money out of it. But like how much, how much are you willing to do for, for the money? And what you mentioned about the, the younger sports people being being kind of mm. into this is just a natural thing for them. They've kind of grown up with this and, and it's quite normal. For them to look at themselves reduced to a, a series of numbers, you know, if they look at themselves in computer games or they look at their uh, their performance data, and it's quite normal for them to think of themselves in these terms. You know, they haven't done it any other way. So... Maybe it doesn't literally doesn't seem like work to them to have to do this. Um, I mean, there was a guy called um, what? What I what kind of freaks me out a little bit though is the accelerated obsolescence that this implies for all of us. You know, for all people, uh, th- this accent on on youth, like the 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 technology develops so quickly that it's increasingly it's only people who are really young who can understand it. This guy called Mark Gallagher was on with Easterby. Um, he's a, he's got an F1 background. He said, "Look, the problem in our industry is our chief executive is 84 years old. If YouTube does something that annoys him, he wants to he wants to know their fax number so he can fire off an angry fax. You know, <laughs> there's, there's this sort of uh, generationally, he says, the leadership in sport is at the wrong place in terms of technological potential. The people who actually control the sport are dependent on the people who work for yeah, them. Yeah, and he says that the big issue is that they're not willing to admit that. When you get to the point that you're in charge of something like F1, you're not willing to admit, I don't know anything about this so please teach me you make out as though I know all there is that needs to be known therefore nothing gets done I'm at the forefront of this new technology and you tell the world this in the form of a, of an A4 one page press release two days before the Grand Prix you know um, where he says the counter example in F1 is Red Bull you go to their office it's full of 20 year olds or 20 somethings who are totally who get it they get it and I was sitting there thinking do they? No, they don't. I mean, they—they twenty they somethings have never gotten anything. That's the whole point about them. They're idiots. I mean, if you—I'm talking to you, twenty something listener—you don't know anything about the world. I mean, that's—it's part of what makes you so crazy. You know that crazy, beautiful thing that you are. But you know, historically, there has never been a time when twenty somethings knew anything about anything. Genghis Khan. Until now. Was Genghis Khan 20-something? Brendan Rogers, Alexander the Great. I mean, the people in the... Say, for instance, if you look at the history Alexander of the 14th the Great, century... Kid. Alexander the Great was, yeah. And, he but cried I mean, salt tears because there were no worlds left to conquer. He was it, 27. It's true, he was. And and um, and he didn't last long after that point. 
you know, and he, and he went to the... But was it... Did it really... When you look back, was it really, you know, trying to just... What he was doing was was stupid. He it was. Alexander he shouldn't have been Grey. doing it. Did you hear the guy's name again? Mark Allen. Well, he wasn't called no, Alexander, Alexander the Great. No, he wasn't Mark called Gallagher. Alexander the Mediocre, you know. No, it's he true. was called Alexander the Great. And and a lot of the great these great historical figures were quite young because, you know, the fact is they, like Alexander the Great, they died quite young. The, you can expect to live a long time. You look at the, you know, the, the history of that crazy 14th century. I mean, not that you ever would. It's only, it's, you know, um... People don't do that kind of thing anymore. You know, I'm I'm one of the last generation of people to have to have wasted time down that that blind alley. Uh, but you know, the people involved, you know, were incredibly young at the time. It's one of the reasons why so many horrible things happened, so many crazy things. Um, I don't know if Alexander the Great's um, conduct uh, showed wisdom. Anyway, back to back to your <laughs> overall point. Uh, yeah. Well, what Richard Arnold, you mentioned him. He's the yeah. group managing director of Manchester United. He turned up, and he also got a huge, uh, huge turnout to see him. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, essentially, he just gave like a, the presentation that he might give to Manchester United uh, sponsors. He's a guy essentially who works. Uh, he's the second in the management structure of Manchester United behind Edward Woodward. Ed. Woodward. That's why. That's why he calls himself Ed Woodward because of the difficulty in saying Edward Woodward, <laughs> which I've just demonstrated there. They're actually college buddies. They bent. They got accountancy. Uh, they went to. I think they had science together in college, but they they became accountants together. They came up through the ranks of accountancy together, and now they run Manchester United together. Richard Arnold uh, essentially gave the performance he, he might have given if if we had all been people looking to sponsor Man United. And this is the reach. This is like, this is how many people Manchester United reaches out to through its global media presence. He said, um, we are a, um, a mobile first media company focused on consumable chunks of content that fans can engage with on the go. Hmm. Uh, you know, the I was thinking about this. You told me this uh, earlier in the week. Uh, the, the GA had this thing that basically tweet into them what the GA means to you and we'll put it in the tunnel underneath the Hogan stand. Oh, yeah. I'm not entirely sure that if Man United were to do a similar thing, someone would, would tweet in that line. But if I could sum up Manchester United in one tweet, it would probably have to be as a mobile first, whatever the hell. You Consumable chunks of content that fans can engage with on the go. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure they're going to put that natty total. He was introduced as a, man for, a director of a club that had a billion fans and immediately so, followers and immediately started talking about how it was 659 million followers. So you're kind of thinking... I don't know if I can trust these numbers that much. Any of the numbers that he's that he's mentioning here, uh, there there is a sort of pluck from thin air element. I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm probably counted as one of these followers because I've I've written I've written Manchester United on Twitter, for instance. I've written those words. I'm sure it's been picked up, and I may, that may count me as a as a follower. Um, you know, 325 million in Asia, 90 million in Europe, 37 million in North America. Or that was South America, actually. But you know, he was talking about how they kind of engage with these, with these guys, um, with these these followers that they have. But I I was a little surprised at one point when he put up a graph that showed Manchester United had edged ahead of Vin Diesel in the global uh, followers stakes. And I thought, is that uh, is that something that they should be telling me? I don't want to know that. I mean. I, I assumed Man United were way bigger than Vin Diesel, but it turns out they're only a little bit bigger 
at least measured in terms of fans. And still nowhere near as big as The Rock, I would say. <laughs> the Rock. If Vin Diesel is at that level. It's true. I mean, I think Cristiano above Ronaldo... J- above, well above Jason Statham, though. So that's good news. Cristiano probably tramples all over them. Jason Statham, yeah. And bigger than Rihanna and bigger than Justin Timberlake. They were all... They were on this graph. They were on this graph, but like only slightly bigger, Owen. I would have thought... To be honest, I would have thought much bigger. Mm. But that's because I'm ignorant. Sounds, I don't know anything about the world of celebrity. This sounds like total nonsense. <laughs> Look, this Manchester United... Uh, <laughs> Localised uh, content that stimulates, stimulates fan engagement. Speak to them in their own language. That's one of the things that Manchester United are doing. They've got language-tailored content. Localise. Make content digestible. Be where the fans want to be. Be where they want to meet. One social media platform isn't going to be enough. Don't just talk. Listen. And make social content unique. Give fans a reason to return. Those are the five things that his presentation boiled down to. In the end, I was just like, I didn't realise. I came away with renewed respect for Vin Diesel. <laughs> I thought, I didn't realise this guy, what a big deal this guy was. <laughs> but he's huge. That's the end of Kennedy's report on sport. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler is here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. All right, Jonathan Wilson joins us now to talk Manchester City. Jonathan, after a fairly pitiful performance last night, Liam Brady on RTE's coverage was fairly scathing of the players in particular, um, more so than the, the tactics right now. That he just said they made no effort. Yaya Torre, chief among the culprits there. And he reckons that they need to actually rip up the squad and start again next season. What do you think? Well, I can see why he says that. I mean, it, you know, I think the worst thing about it is this isn't a one-off. We've, we've seen this coming probably all season, but... That that game at West Ham was a was a real sort of eye opener for me anyway. That they were there was a, an unbelievable lack of coherence about about how they played, and I'm trying to think if that was the, I think it was the first Premier League game I'd seen them actually in the stadium this season. Uh, I've seen them in the Champions League, and then what was what was clear to me about that game was you, know, you see highlights and they seem to be creating loads of chances. You think oh well, it's all fine really, but when you're actually there and you, know, you can see the whole the whole picture. Um, you realise an utter lack of cohesion about the mid, well, the midfield mainly, and but then obviously the fullbacks breaking forward to, to join the midfield, and then the the transition to to the forward line, and what you have is a series of individuals who are all supremely good players who are capable of doing brilliant things, and so even that game against West Ham, they hit the woodwork twice. I think Tira hit hit the woodwork, and Aguero hit the woodwork. Uh, but both both of those instances were from a player doing something brilliant. There was no sort of sense of collective effort or collective energy, and and that's that's just not how how you get away with it at top level. It, that, that might save you a point here and there. It might might turn a draw into a win, but that's not a, a recipe for 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 long term success. And it was exactly the same last night. That in in, in the second half when. You know, okay, maybe they underestimated Seska. Maybe, maybe sort of they were a little bit dozy in the first half. But by half time, they'd worked out. You know, we're going to have to play properly here. And the second half, it was still really flat. There was, you know, two, I mean, tactically it was slightly baffling to me. They they, they moved to a slightly further forward to the start of the second half. Then they moved him back even before the red card started happening. 
And then there was that complete loss of discipline, not not just the two red cards, but but Nasri should have gone as well. So, you know, something is is deeply rotten in that club, and and I, I don't really see an easy solution to it. Yeah, the, when you talked about the lack of cohesion there, I was about to ask you whether that means it's it's more about a tactical situation. But if you're saying the club is rotten, then it's not just tactics. There's something, there's a mindset, there's something going on in that club because they've prided themselves on almost maintaining this. Uh, the, I was about to say a family, uh, a family run club element, not quite that, but they have maintained that the, their owners have done it quite well in terms of how the staff have been treated there and the sort of atmosphere at the club. But you're saying it, actually that's not necessarily the case. It's, it's rotten there now. Well, I, I, you know, I think they have, yeah, from, from, a, uh, from a top down perspective, I'm not really sure what else they, they could have done while you know, investing billions of pounds. The, the, the notion of having a holistic approach, of having everything working together, of you know, having the academy playing in the same style as the first team, seeing in theory promote players, all that I think is, is utterly logical and, and, and the right way to go about things. But I, I mean, I, I guess the thing I don't really understand is what, what suddenly went right last year. You, know, you, you had the, they, they won the title and, and then there was the, the dip and the, the, the lack of hunger and maybe that was the time to move a couple of players on. But then they sort of did that. And they, you know, they they brought in Negredo and Navas and um, uh, Jovetic, who was the other big signing last summer, Fernandinho. Uh, and you thought, well, yeah, you can see why they bought those four players. You can see how they fit together. You can see what the the idea for for how they're going to play is. And then suddenly we're, we're back to exactly where we were two years ago of, of a team that just seems to have lost its way. That seems to have lost its its sense of purpose, its sense of direction. And yeah, that 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 Nasri little kick out. I mean, it's it's disgraceful on a whole number of levels. I mean, A could could have injured the the, the, the bloke he kicked, but B is just so sort of disrespectful to his teammates, the fans who've turned up, to the opposition. This just sort of I can't be bothered to play this game properly. So I'm just going to kick this bloke on the knee. It's just I mean, it's it's um, it it speaks of a well, yeah, as I said, something something quite rotten in in the core of the club. It is, when you look at it, remarkably different from what happened at Chelsea um, we, you know, when they went through this process of, of becoming a mega club. Um, when Jose Mourinho arrived there, he, he, I mean, okay, he was building on an existing foundation that had been left by Claudio Ranieri, but the team that he put in place and the sort of team structure that he established went on to win the Champions League in 2012, many years after he'd left, with a lot of the same players and this, the, the same attitude and the same kind of competitive spirit. Why is it that he succeeded in doing that and, and Manchester City have completely failed to, to establish that kind of uh, of an ethic in their team? Well, OK. Um, the, the issue of Chelsea in the Champions League in, in 2012, I, mean, I think, is slightly misleading. I, mean, I, th- I think that was a slightly you know, a, a freakish occurrence. Um, well, it was, it was freakish, but, you know, at the same time, it was recognisably... Um, you know the the same virtues that Jose Mourinho had instilled in Chelsea. This this um, competitive spirit, this uh, great defensive organization. You know, no one's losing discipline. Uh, you know, in that in that 2012 Champions League run for Chelsea. I mean, it was well, apart from well, John, yeah, John, John Terry that time. <laughs> in the semi-finals, he missed the final, which was pretty ill-disciplined. There was there was that. Yeah, but uh, nobody remembers he missed the final now because he was there in his <laughs> jersey. Well, his pretty, <laughs> pretty sure John Terry remembers he missed that final. Um, no, I, I take your point that, that that sort of core of players um, saw them through, but I, you know, I, I think that's actually just it's it's a huge difference in 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 Chelsea and City that Chelsea they appointed in Mourinho this great strong man leader, 
Um, and you know, there's sort of a, a great cult of Mourinho, which meant that no subsequent leader, no subsequent coach could ever shake that. And that actually cost a series of coaches their jobs. I mean, Andre Vies Boas in particular. Uh, and, and sort of Di Matteo coming in was sort of the the surrender of sort of the appointing the club apparatchik who who you know who'd been there years before, who you knew was never going to actually try and do anything radical or different. Um, whereas City have, have gone for this holistic approach, and you know the the the, the power in that club is um Soriano, it's it's Chiki Bagiristan. It's not necessarily Pellegrini. You know, he he he's not that same um tyrannical, if you like, figure that, that that Mourinho is. And you know, when if Chelsea actually got back to looking like a good side on a week to week basis, it's when Mourinho's returned. And and in a sense that I guess the test of, of Chelsea's underlying structure is what happens when Mourinho goes this time. Yeah, uh, do they have that, that sense of uh, you know, desperately missing, you're know, being being haunted by Mourinho's ghost, which which went on for for what six years last time. This has been a, an issue over the last probably ten years or so. English football trying to get used to a different way of doing things. I mean, the idea of the power not being fully vested in the manager has been commonplace in European football for many years. I would have thought by this stage, with the international. Uh, international element of the Premier League that a, a club would be able to adapt to it and Manchester City well, was Mancini was, was a different sort of character to, to Pellegrini maybe he raged against it as he as he accepted a certain amount of it but are you surprised that it seems to be causing these issues at Man City now, we should remember that they did win the Premier League la- last season yeah I mean I'm not sure that the the you know the structure in, in terms of having a director of football and a, and a manager who's Less powerful. I'm not really sure that's that's necessarily the issue. Um, the, I mean, I, what is the key issue? Then? Maybe maybe rotten is slightly. Maybe maybe a, the the term is is slightly misleading. That there, there seems to be a willingness to switch off at City, which I find odd. You know that, that you know, the greatest clubs. You you, you look at. Um, uh, Joe Fagan's diaries, for instance, which yeah, came out what last year, the year before, uh, and they're they're brilliant in terms of showing the mentality at Liverpool in their, their great years of the late seventies, early eighties. Of you win the title, you forget about it, and you start building for the next season. And how Bob Paisley was utterly ruthless in in doing that, and he'd know sort of months before the end of the season. Well, he he's going, he's not going to stay next season, and he obviously wouldn't let on to the player until the season was over. And he'd know exactly who he was going to buy. And that sort of process of, of, of always looking to the, to the next thing, which might actually be slightly joyless. It might not be much fun, but it does win things. And with City, you get the impression that's, that's not quite there. That I mean, Maybe they were you know, hit worse than we, we realised by the FFP penalty, that they, they didn't have the freedom in the market they might have had. And so it was slightly restricted, though, of course, they were still able to bring in Fernando and, and, and Mangala. Um, who neither of whom is. I mean, Fernando, I guess, had a lot of injury issues. Mangala's hasn't really looked looked an improvement on what was there before. Um, but but it does seem strange that that, that sort of you know, there's a there's almost a sense of entitlement about them this season, which which wasn't there last year. Is a sense that they can just turn up to places like West Ham and, and win at a stroll without really having to sort of give it everything, uh, and and that. I don't know, maybe something's gone wrong in terms of assessing the characters of the players they're bringing in. Um, I, I mean, again, with the FFP thing, the 
yeah, I think they really miss Negredo this season, which is a strange, seems a strange thing to say. Cause, yeah, I think defensively is actually where the, where the bigger issues have been. But Jekko's out of form, and Jekko's a player who who does come in and out of form, and you know that that's always been the case. And he, he's a player who's the, you know the gap between his best form and his worst form is is enormous, and he's in a in a, in a rut of bad form at the moment. Uh, which places huge pressure on Aguero because the other still hasn't really sort of settled in, and there are no other options. Whereas last season they had Negredo, so when Negredo was in form, great, he he bangs in sort of ten in in twelve games. He's out of form. Okay, Jekko bangs in ten in twelve games. They don't have that those, those options. So I, I think the squad has actually got got weaker over the summer, and it is getting older. I mean, it's um, there's there's a lot of players in that squad who's sort of twenty nine thirty, which okay you'd think of as being just at the peak, but maybe. Having won the title two years out of three, maybe you know, they're just beyond the peak and, and, and the appetite isn't quite there. All right, Jonathan, brilliant stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, thanks. A couple of things from that, Ken. The age of the squad is clearly a factor for Manchester City, but the sense of entitlement, I don't know, I wonder why I wonder why suddenly they feel entitled. Is, is it, I guess because they won the league last year. Maybe you feel, maybe you feel, but it's surely it's the most basic will be in in the in the basic knowledge of any top professional player like these guys are that you actually do have to dig out the results against the lesser teams. You're not just going to walk around and mm. maybe there are so many good players. Each of them looks around to the other one and thinks, oh, "He'll do the business today." Say, you particularly we've got Aguero. Yeah, he'll do the business. I don't really have to get up in support of him. I remember that in Roy Keane's book actually when he said, "You know, we 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 got soft. We looked around. It was like, yeah, Kingsley win us the game. Rude. Yeah, he'll he'll sort it out. Or you know, Bexel pop one in." They kind of got used to those things happening and forgot that they actually had to contribute themselves. That everybody had to had to be at you know had to have the battle fever on uh, for each game. You know, I can't believe though. I mean, when when Jones was talking about maybe the character of the players they brought in wasn't quite. You know, I can't believe that Sami Nasri turned out not to be a reliable. You know, when the chips are down, when you're you know in the trenches, uh, you know the kind of guy you'd want alongside you in the trenches. I can't. I just can't believe it. Amazed. All right, Ken, we spent some time at the Sports Summit uh, in the RDS, and we're going to play my interview with skateboarding superstar Tony Hawk in our other show today, but you were particularly interested in picking the brains of Damien Kamali. Well, Damien Kamali is, uh, you know, I'm sure most people listening to this podcast will know who he is. Um, he guy who, who um, uh, was one of the, kind of was at the forefront of this idea that recruitment could be driven by essentially what what uh, what was happening in Moneyball in the movie Moneyball the book Moneyball it was originally a book Billy Bean in the Oakland days you know this idea that you could use this information which people never had access before this this idea that you can measure the measure the games so you can reduce it to a series of statistics and you can find ones which are more important than other ones you can put that to work in uh in football as well and he was one of the first to try to do that at the biggest clubs and um, yeah we got the chance to talk a little bit to him yesterday I mean first of all I want to ask uh, about your own interest in in, um, in data in, in looking at football through numbers and looking at the world through numbers what, what age were you when you got your first computer? Recently <laughs> in terms of I, I don't know I don't remember to be honest with you. my wife is a computer is a technology or computer teacher so she probably got a computer a lot earlier than I did um, I'm not a, I know people find it strange but I'm not a gig at all no. uh, I'm not I'm not good at computers I'm just good at well good I'm ju- I just love looking at data looking at numbers relating to performance you know high performance and and football. Uh, 
uh, and I'm a lot more interested than that than all the technology next to it. It sounds it, it is a geeky interest though. Looking at, looking at data, looking at reason. When did it develop in you? When did you uh, when did you first realize? Oh, hang on, this is another way to look at the game. The first presentation that Prozone ever made to Premier League club, I was lucky enough to be uh, uh, in the in attendance, and then uh, you know it was jaw drop, dropping for me to see that tool and what we could do with it. You know, it was just an unbelievable piece of data uh, that we could get access to in terms of distance run by the players, number of passes they made, number of touches they had on the ball, number of sprints, at what speed they were sprinting. You know, and that was, I think, 96 or 97, so it goes back a long way, 20 years, almost 20 years. Uh, and then when I joined when I joined Centre 10 in 2004, uh, we started to use data in terms of fitness data you know uh, and then match data tactical and technical aspect and then in 2005 2006 when I joined Spurs I started to develop a friendship with Billy Bean uh, and basically picked his brains about what he was doing in baseball and tried to take what he was doing in baseball into football and that's how he started started and I suppose to this day suppose you know still use that system that we put in place at the time obviously they've improved it with time and experience um, but that's how it all started and since then obviously you know it's strange because in my in my head every time somebody puts something to me now I'm thinking you know how can we measure it uh, and even though I'm, as I said I'm not a geek at all but I believe almost everything can be measured um, and I get frustrated if I cannot measure it. At the time you mentioned 96, 97, you would have been what, 25, 26 years old when this Prozone presentation, when you saw this yeah. Prozone presentation. Uh, at that point, you, would, you were already a, a scout. No, I, w- I, was, I was a youth coach in Japan at the time, and uh, Arsene Wenger was already manager of Arsenal, and I worked with Arsene at, at Monaco when he was the manager there. I was a, first a player. Not a very good one, but a player and then a coach, a youth coach at Monaco. So I was actually into coaching at the time with no idea I was getting into scouting a few years later. But just from a coaching perspective, at first, the first time I saw this this demo, he was, you know, I looked at it from a coaching angle, you know, because we were getting data from games that our own team was playing. Uh, And it's later on when I ran Moneyball that I understood all the impact that data could have on recruitment. Mm. Uh, when, I mean, did, was there ever a time when you were more of a traditional scout? I mean, when you were going to matches in the, in the time-honoured way, looking at games, trying to pick out who's a good player, watching an individual player, thinking, is this guy good or bad? Was there ever a time when, when that was your... Uh, uh, what I mean to say is, in your work as a scout, has it always been with an eye to data? No, sadly, no. Uh, when I started as a scout at Arsenal in '97, you know we had very, very little access to data. You know the, the only piece of data we could get is the number of minutes a player was playing. Uh, was he getting booked a lot? Was he getting injured? If he wasn't playing, you know he was probably getting injured. Number of goals scored. If we were lucky, we had access to assists. But then the more we went, we, you know, the more we started scouting internationally with Arsenal, and the more we tried to find data. But really. For me, the big breakthrough was meeting with Billy Bean 
and what he was doing at the A's in, in 2005, 2006. And then I came back to London and I said to the owner, to the chairman at Spurs, I said, listen, we need to do that. You know, uh, We need to use the Opta data. Uh, we need to use all this relevant information, trying to put it into algorithm and find somebody who can do it for us and, and produce, you know, make software that will assist us in recruitment and help us making more rational and scientific decisions rather than solely relying on scouts. Well, we saw a presentation uh, just before your own talk. Uh, Jens Mavland gave us, uh, in which he showed a, a scene from Moneyball, in which the Billy Bean character—it's uh, a sort of a—it's a slightly exaggerated, dra- dramatized scene. Well, it seemed to me to be exaggerated. Anyway, you've got all these old guys uh, who, who have these clearly spurious notions of what makes a player good and what makes a player bad. And, you know, this player's girlfriend isn't good looking enough. And that player's, you know, the, the ball makes a great sound when he, when he hits it. Is, is that similar to the type of situation you actually encountered in, in English football? Yeah, in, not in, only in English football, in football in general, but yes, definitely. At the beginning, you know, when I started, and even later on, even to now, you know, I, I'm a great believer, you know, I, I don't think data on its own can tell the full story, and I don't think scouting on its own can tell the full story. I think the two need to be matched and mixed up and, 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 and do a great partnership. So I'm a great believer in educating, in educating the scouts, uh, you know, on data, on the psychological aspect, on body language, on attitude of players. You know, when they see something, they need to be able to interpret it, the scout. Um, but, you know, I heard things such, you know, you hear that all the time. He can't defend, he can't tackle, uh, he can't score, he doesn't score, but he will if he comes to us. Um, you know, all these random remarks that are not based on anything except on the scout's experience, which sometimes is big. But sometimes it's not enough. You know, there is no reason why if a player doesn't score somewhere, he's going to come to us and suddenly score, unless there is something that tells us it's going to be the case. Um, and it's difficult to see that with the eye. The conflict that it, that it creates, though, is, uh, I mean, it's, it's clear that there's going to be tension. You said you, you, um, you believe in it in the kind of uh, a marriage of, you know, data and traditional scouting. Um, but you can, you can see how traditional scouts would, would look at this, these developments with horror. This is, this is the end of them. This is redundancy for them. If they're being told that, you know, they, they go to a game and come back with an impression of what they see, and then, you know, somebody says to them, well, actually, you know, the data doesn't really back up anything you're saying. I, I don't think it's the end of, of traditional scouting. It's just we need to scout differently. We need to look at different things. That's why I'm talking about scout education. You know, when I was at Spurs or at Liverpool, I used to get scouts, international scouts, at least in twice a year to watch, you know, for two or three days of seminar, uh, to watch our team play, uh, our youth team play, so it gives them some reference, and also take them through the data we were looking at. So when I was telling a scout, he was coming back to me with a report, and I was telling the scout, can you repeat high intensity runs and sprints? Then the scout definitely know what I'm looking for, what I'm, I'm meaning, you know, because I will tell him, I will show him the data, say, this is what I mean, look at the data. You haven't got the data of the player you are scouting, but what, by watching him and educating your eye and having an example of, of what we're looking at, then you can tell me if he can repeat sprints. Mm-hmm. And, and the scouts, the ones who don't want to change, you know, they fall out. They, they, they don't fall out, but they disappear. Of the, of the scouting world, the, the good ones 
will definitely adapt. And then the beauty is to marry the wisdom of experience scout with input of data that we've showed them. And that makes the best scouts. And to be honest with you, I was lucky enough that maybe it's because they will not apply for a job with me if, if, uh, if, because I know how, how interested I am in data. But I've always been lucky to have scouts who understand both the data and, and, the, and the eye observation. Did you not then have, a, have something of a, a problem establishing credibility in the early years, especially given that, to begin with, the, the sort of information that you were working with was rudimentary compared to what's available today? And we, and we know that the information available today, comprehensive though it appears to be, nobody's still quite sure what the important things to look at are. So, so in those early uh, years, you know, at Tottenham, even, even you know, going to Liverpool there, a big club who, with a certain way of doing things, You've got to show results. You've, you've got. It's difficult to establish. Well, look, I'm somebody who's worth listening to. Is that how challenging was that for you in your own career? Um, I suppose it wasn't that difficult because the uh, the chairman bought in straight away, and the scouts did, and everybody understood where I was coming from. And at Liverpool, I was recruited by uh, Fenway Sports Group because I was into analytics. So, you know, when I arrived at the club, everybody at the club knew about that aspect of my work. You know, the way I started at Spurs is I was getting, uh, I, I was, I was uh, working with that. We were working with our Arsenal already with the Opta data. So every month you get reports of how your team did and how your team compared to other Premier League clubs, right? So when I got to Saint Etienne, I took the Opta feed, and when I got to Spurs, I took the Opta feed as well. And our goal was to finish top four at Spurs, which was very, very, cha- you know, a big challenge at the time. So what did I do? I look at the EPTA data, I understand what the top four were doing and what we're not doing right. Yeah. right? So, what, so what kind of things Well, basically, you... basically, it was the massive difference between Spurs and the top four of the time, which was Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal and Manchester United, is that they were a lot better than us at possession in the final third, opponent partnership third, third, sorry, success, number of passes in the opponent final third and successful passes in the opponent final third. Mm. And it was funny because every month I got the, the opt report, you had the top four, then you had Spurs, and then you had all the rest. It's like we were on our own league, <laughs> basically, and nobody was catching up. Because I think it was Everton, but they were very far behind us. There yeah. was no Man City at the time, obviously. And then we were struggling to catch up. Yeah. So starting from this, I thought, okay, I went to see the chairman and the manager. I said, right, this is what they do. This is what we don't do. If we want to break into the top four, that's what we need to change. Mm-hmm. Once you do that, you try to identify players who are going to help you and the team improve and get into that top four category. So this what? is how, for instance, Berbatov arrived. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And Berbatov was a perfect example because not only he could score goals, which was obvious, but his ability to create chances in the final third, his, his composure, passing vision in the final third, and the number of assists he had per game. I think, I think he had two seasons at 21 goals and 18 assists before we signed him. Mm. And I thought, this is exactly what we need. Yeah. So we got in. We, it was a big improvement, but still not enough. Mm. So then I thought, OK, what do we like at midfield? And then Modric, you know, and that's how you do it. These are these were great signings for Tottenham and uh, worked out very well for them. Um, what about the failures? Were there, were there, when you look back, um, say, you know, we're talking about nearly 10 years ago now, at your time at Tottenham, for instance, can you can you pinpoint moments where you 
attributed too much importance to one particular um, something which you thought was important at the time, which turned out maybe not to be important. Something you know, an, an instance of which you've well, learned in terms of data. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, was oh. there a point at which you said, oh, you know, I think this is important. I think we need more of this, and then definitely. It, yeah. You know, when we started, we were all looking at the wrong things. Yeah. Um, so what kind of things? Well, for instance. And, and going back, it, it's, it, I even started to look at the wrong things at Saint-Étienne, but thankfully it was not involving recruitment, so it didn't cost us any money. But, you know, I was convinced, because everybody was convinced at the time, of the importance of possession. So I thought if we have more possession than the opponents at the end of the season, on average, we'll be in a very good position in the league. And then getting the reports from match data... You know, sometimes we were having position, not winning. Sometimes we were not having position and winning games. So I thought, this is not right. And then I looked at challenges because I thought, you know, everybody said, oh, if you don't stuck in, if you don't win your challenges, you don't win games. And then the Prozone report were coming back and we had 49% of challenges won, the other team 51%, we still won. So, you know, cross that one also. So it was an elimination process, but we all went through it. You know, Mike Ford and Sam Allardyce at Bolton at the time, they looked at things they thought were relevant and they were, they were not. So that's from a, a team perspective, you know, and from an individual perspective, I've made big mistakes on, on player signing at, at Spurs because the data was great, absolutely fantastic, but only over a season when I should have looked over two or three seasons. Um, the age was the right one, the position was needed, what we needed, everything was right, but I didn't take the individual in consideration. I forgot the mental aspect of it. That's, that's something which is difficult to measure. Yeah, it's difficult to measure, but with experience now, I, I'm, you know, I measure it a lot easier than I could 15, 10 years ago. Um, but I, and maybe if I would have spent more time with the player, if I would have spent more time actually physically scouting him, my scouts did, I didn't. Uh, maybe I would have said, "Listen, he's not the right character for us," and he turned out to be a big failure, even though everything matched. You know. Who are we talking about here? Uh, of course, I won't say his name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you might have gone physically, watched this guy, and, and realized he wears, he wears gloves uh, in the winter, and this would have been a bad sign. Yeah, I mean, this is an example that you, you mentioned earlier of the kind of uh, thing that a, a, sc- a scout would raise, uh, raise a spurious objection. Oh, he wears gloves. We don't sign that type of player. In a way, though, what that scout is expressing is shorthand for something else. It's a sort of a sense that, you know, it's... It, while, it, while obviously, I mean, the, you know, it doesn't make any difference whether we, whether you wear gloves, really. But maybe, maybe, maybe it actually does. Maybe the guy does have a point. It's, it's, it's an irrational thing, but it's not as though, it, you know, human beings are, are perfectly rational creatures. No, maybe this decide of a guy going out with gloves uh, inspires the opposition and deflates his, his supporters. I, I don't know. Maybe there is the kernel of a point there. Yes, but I think it's it's about, you know, it's, it's not for me, but it's Nat Silver saying that, but it's about a signal in the noise. I think when we're talking about that, we're looking at noise and we want signal. And yeah, okay, that player was wearing gloves, but look at everything else he was doing. Did he have a bad attitude? No. Was he committed? Yes. Was he... Did he have in, intrinsic motivation? Did he want to progress every day? Was at the training pitch? Was he giving 100% during games? Yes. Mm-hmm. So who cares if you wear gloves? Yeah. You know, and I will come. I will totally agree with you. If that player was wearing gloves and he will not work out, he will not chase balls, uh, he will have go at 
at his, as, as it, his teammates, it will be selfish. Then you know the goal, the gloves aspect will be part of a shorthand for a, expressing exactly. his, his, his character weakness. Exactly. I mean, the you know the, the fit when you went to Liverpool. I'm interested actually to hear what you said when you when you went to Tottenham. You were looking at how do we increase our passes in the final third and so on. When you went to Liverpool, what were you having analysed the squad that you found there, which wasn't really in good shape? Uh, how did you analyse that? What did you decide needed to be done with that team? Lack of pace. So the data showed that we lacked pace. We lacked ability to repeat high-intensity runs during games. Hence the signing of Jordan Anderson. We needed an engine at midfield that Jordan brought fantastically. You know, we had this data, fitness data, before he came to us. It was obvious that he would be a dominating force in the Premier League. You didn't worry about his gait? His what, sorry? His gait. Well, this was a, something which was raised actually when Alex Ferguson published his autobiography. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, he said I was. His running style was uh, he ran from the hips or something like this. <laughs> Did you know no, yeah, I read that. No, no, I wasn't. No, and uh, to be honest, uh, to be fair, I, I've, I've asked our director of performance to look at, at him at the time. I said, Do you see anything that could, you know, bring injuries sooner rather than later? He said, No, there is absolutely nothing. So. Because he's a world-class director of performance, I took his word for granted. And matter of fact, he's never in, he's never injured. Yeah. But coming back, so we had this we had this lack of pace, lack of engine at midfield, and we were definitely lacking something at front. So you know, hence the signing we've made with mm. uh, with Luis Suarez and Carroll. I mean, it, it seems it was a, it was a curious uh, combination yourself and Kenny Dalglish because he you know you were kind of a, a new wave figure in a sense, and he was a classic old school football manager, you know, who'd been out of the game for a long time. Uh, what were your own feelings when, when you learned that you'd be working alongside Dog Leash? Were you, uh, did you feel trepidation? Did you feel um, it was going to be difficult to assert yourself in that environment? No, I didn't, because the good thing is that I, I knew Kenny for five or six months before, maybe less, four months before he got the job, and he was involved a lot in the academy, and I was part of my duty was to, uh, to look after the academy, so I spent a lot of time with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think he's the first. Per- he's the first person when I came into the place at the training ground at Melwood. He's the first person I bumped into. He was coming out. I said, "Kenny, I need to speak to you. You know, when are you free? I, you know, I need to have your, your your view about the football club." So we sat down for about two hours, and he told me, you know, he told me what Liverpool was about, what he felt, where the academy was, etc., etc. So we we had a very good relationship before he got the job. And one thing with Kenny. I've got two things. First of all, it's one of the brightest individuals I've ever met. Secondly, he's not old school. And, you know, he's not old school at all. He brought into the, the data thing straight away. He understood straight away what performance, the whole human performance aspect could bring. He understood where we were using, you know, data to predict injury, when we were using data uh, to measure the player fatigue. Um, he understood data. We were losing, play, looking at player, looking at player recruitment. He understood data. We were looking at when analysis, analyzing the opponent. Uh, you know, all that. He took that on board brilliantly, to be honest with you. So I never felt I was working with somebody who, who didn't want to understand it or anything like this. First of all, he had the intellectual, the intellect to understand it, and secondly, he was very open-minded. You must have had some disagreements, though. Yeah, you always have. You always had, but not not on the core principle of what we were trying to do. That's the most important thing. You know, you can't disagree on the left back or on the goalkeeper or whatever. You know, I can say I think this one is better than this one. He said, "Oh, I think it's the other way around." It's n- it's no big deal. Where 
you've got issues is when there is there are cultural differences between two individuals or within a lack within, of respect, sorry. Well, that, that's that's even worse. But mm-hmm. I'm just talking about you know I, I come I come with uh, a data background. He came with no data background, so it's like a clash of culture. Mm-hmm. And if we would have stopped there, we would not have no relationship. Mm-hmm. But we had a fantastic relationship, you know, working relationship and friendship, just because he was open-minded. At this time, David, I think you were you, you became uh, for a while the the most famous uh, director of football uh, in the game, uh, and you became a figure of public scrutiny around that time. I wanted to ask you about this, because a number of the signings, I mean, um, obviously Carroll and, and Downing maybe didn't work out as well as you'd hoped. Henderson took a while to prove himself, and Suarez even um, maybe wasn't doing enough in that first full season to take the focus off these. So there was criticism of the... Of the of the signings, I mean, your name was a you were media uh, under media scrutiny. How were those months for you? Did you feel a sense of um, uh, a kind of embattlement or paranoia at this time? No, because I've got I've dev- working in the Premier League for so long. I've developed thick, thick skin. Really? Can oh. anyone be that thick skinned? I mean, surely if, if you, you, if know, you find you yourself being talked about in national newspapers all the time, you I don't people. read. I don't read them. Everybody says that. No, no, it's Nobody true. is telling the truth. No, it's true. I'm, I'm, I'm on my kids in the head. I don't read them. So if there is something bad, you know, the press people, what the club will tell me. Yeah. Uh, but in bad, I mean, a player behaving badly, you know, a player talking about the club badly, or or the managing say, the manager saying something, you know, something that really is, matters. Mm-hmm. But all the criticism, you you know, you have to deal with it. And I I don't I don't look at it. I don't listen to talk shows. I don't look at TV except the games. And if they talk before the game, I don't look. If they talk at halftime, I don't look. And if they talk after the game, I don't look. I just watch the two forty-five minutes, and I don't read the newspapers. So, and, gen- and I, you know, I generally don't do. How so, do you keep up with the game? Because people, first of all, the game doesn't happen in newspapers. The game happens because I've got scouts, I've got people I know in the game, agents who call me all the time, tell me there is a contractual issue with this one. This player has got in- got injured. That's the relevant aspect for me. And then the whole. I try to learn, you know, from performance people. So I go to see what they do in baseball, in NFL, in NBA, in cycling, in Formula One, uh, in sailing, in cricket. You know, that that really matters to me because that's where you that's where you learn from. Uh, mm-hmm. On top of learning on day to day, you know, on the football f- front. Um, and I, I, understood, I understood. You know, there were two issues. One, England didn't like what they call continental structure, having a director of football. Mm. But Kenny knocked it on the head very quickly. I said, listen, I've got a fantastic relationship with Damien. He takes a lot of workload for me that I couldn't do anyway, and we get on great. So that was that. Mm. The second aspect that, yeah, we use data and analytics, and people tell me, oh, you know, look, he doesn't know what he's doing. Look at Jordan Anderson. doesn't know what he's doing. Look at Andy Carroll. And now people are saying, oh, this Jordan Anderson is fantastic. Mm. But I, I'm a lot more, you know, I'm in, in the middle of the road, level Headed. I know it works because exactly the same thing happened to me at Spurs. You know, mm. people were criticizing. I got sacked because the players were not good enough. Modric wasn't good enough. Kabul wasn't good enough. He skipped team captain. Bell was Bell a total disaster. Bell was, <laughs> he, was, uh, he was terrible for about 20 games. Bell, Bell was... He, you, they wanted to sell him because he wasn't good enough. Harry Redknapp did want to sell Bell, didn't of he? Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For three million pounds or something like this to Hamburg. Well, I heard, I read, yeah, something like this. Um, just a couple, a, a couple more, Damon. Uh, we saw this um, presentation by Jens Melvang just before you came on, and he, and he was showing Prozone's sort of uh, transfer market tool, 
Um, very similar. Anyone who's played Championship Manager, I suppose, will recognise essentially the, the concept here. You know, input certain. You know, I want a player who's good at finishing, good at dribbling, good at pace, plays in wide positions. Put in all this information. Eden Hazard turns out to be recommended by the system. Then you go down to the players you can actually afford. It'll look great. But I wonder if everyone is using the same tool. How can anyone have an edge? No, not not everybody's using the same tool. I think the big the bigger clubs have got their own software. Sometimes, you know, Arsenal. Uh, it was announced that last week they had the AGM or two weeks ago, and one of the subsidiary subsidiary company of Arsenal bought Start DNA, the US company. So they are obviously developing their own stuff. So developing an Arsenal specific Ab- system. Absolutely, no one else will see. Exactly, and Spurs are doing the same, and City are doing the same. Chelsea used to do the same. Uh, you know, they all do their own stuff, but then pros are coming and say to clubs that either don't want to develop their own stuff or can't say, listen, we've got this and, you know, it's very good and you want to use it. And there are a lot of good things, mm. you know, in, in there. But the edge that you could, the competitive advantage come from the culture, you know, of the football club. Is mm. it, does, your, does the football club take advantage of all the data that is out there? Yes or no? Some people don't care about it. Mm. If all the top clubs do it, then it's how you interpret it. And and don't forget that one, two big things. Uh, I, li- I like to say, it's not from me, but I use it a lot. When you scout a player, it's about eyes, ears, numbers. Right? Eyes is scouting, numbers is data. Here's is what you hear about the player. Talk to his mother and see what kind of guy Exactly. He is. And check his background, etc., etc. Yeah. So the player personality makes a massive, massive difference. So it's not because the data says one thing, mm. that you're going to bring the player into your environment that is going to be successful. So that's the culture where the player would be brought in. It definitely competitive advantage. The second aspect of it is if, if there is stability in the coaching staff, if, like, you know, with Alex Ferguson or Arsene Wenger, if those guys stay in place for a long time and are committed to develop young players, they can do miracles. Mm. They can absolutely work miracles. Uh, and, and that's also where there is a massive competitive advantage. Just the last thing, Damien, do you see ways in which the advent of um, data analysis or the awareness, or the, the ability to measure things that are happening in the field is actually changing the game itself. I mean, for instance, um, I keep talking about Jens Melbank, uh, but he, he mentioned uh, that, you know, to play up front or to play in attacking positions, you need to be able to, uh, you need to have a certain kind of uh, threshold speed, you know, if it, and if you can't sort of hit that frequently, then maybe you should move back. And if people start to think this way, then that's the end of the slow strikers I grew up with, like Niall Quinn. You know, they, they, those guys aren't in the game anymore. The, another thing that strikes me is maybe these, uh, you know, for instance, this Dortmund team, um, who have it as, a, as an article of fate. They want to run further than their opponent in every match. Um, it wouldn't have been possible to, to play that. Or, or No, it, people couldn't have played that way 10 years ago or 20 years ago before you knew, before you knew you, you were able to measure how far you'd run. They, it, well, well actually, they did, because if you look at the great AC Milan team with, with Arrigo Saki, it's exactly what he was doing. Yeah. But, you know, as I said before, the top coaches in Trishan match what data say. Yeah. And I'm sure that Arrigo Saki, at the time, had this intuition that he, will, he, wants, he wanted to press, like, my, like Dortmund, yeah. you know, like Marseille doing now with Marcelo Bielsa. He wanted to press like mad, regain the ball high up, and then play from there. And, and, and 
outnumber the opponent. So he was doing it without having the data because his intuition, because he's, you know, he's probably not far from being a genius, he's, yeah. he changed the world of football, you know, yeah. between 87 or 86 and 90 something. He changed the world of football. So he was doing it, but without having the data. And, and yes, yes, football will change. I think one of the big change in terms of purely how the game is played, when we get live fitness data from games, that will be a game changer. Because then the manager will see the data and actually make substitutions according to the, the fitness data that he gets. So, when you say fitness data, you mean what kind of indicators is he is he well, going to be getting? Distance run, uh-huh. high intensity runs, which is everything above 18 kilometers mm-hmm. uh, per hour, sprints, which is everything about depending on the thresholds and the curves. Basically, it's everything above 21 kilometers. So once we get the live data and there is an analyst on the bench sitting next to the manager and actually says during the game, say, listen, that player of the opponent team is slowing down and if you move our quick player against him, you may have a chance or our player is slowing him down so you need to make a substitution. That will be a game changer, definitely. It only won't be one of the many that will be coming, but that will be one. Uh, just finally, Damien, you're working now as a consultant based in uh, Nice, uh, doing some television work as well, but what's your, uh, what's your aim? How soon do you think, or do you plan to try to get back into football with a, with a job like you've had with Liverpool and Tottenham? Yeah, I'd love to do that. I'd love to go back. You know, it's my life. Football is my life. So, uh, and day to day, I've been involved since I was five. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's my goal. If I, can find, uh, if I can find the right opportunity with the right people to work for, then I'll definitely do it. Damien Kamani, thanks so many for talking to us. Thanks, Ken. All right, that was Ken's conversation with Damien Kamoli uh, yesterday at the Web Summit. Ken, quite, I really enjoyed that. Uh, you, that person you mentioned, Jens... Jens Mavlon. A few times, who had given a talk before. Who was he, just for a bit of context? Yeah, he was actually in... He, he gave a talk before Kamoli, and then he was in the talk with Kamoli as well. Uh, he, was, he was one of the people who was involved in that. And he's a guy from ProZone, a Danish guy, who'd given this speech where, where he kind of run us through um, ProZone's recruitment tool... Um, which was quite interesting, actually. Um, I mean, it's, he again, it was a little bit of a... It was kind of a sales pitch, but it was kind of interesting to see what they're doing, you know. Uh, one of the interesting things was just to see how much better than everyone else Eden Hazard is, according to... Uh, <laughs> according to it, maybe, it's, maybe it's not that much of a surprise. Uh, but on this thing, Adam Lallana was re- reckoned to be a little bit better than Koke. I was surprised by that one. A lot of good stuff generally on, on the analytics, uh, the analysis of data in sport there, Ken. But of course, most of us got rude. The juicy part was around Liverpool. What happened there? You, <laughs> Doug Leash. And he was he was quite strong on that. that Doug Leash is one of the brightest people he's ever met. He's not old school at all. He bought into the data straight away. We got on unbelievably well. Uh, and I think probably what cemented that in, Kamali said, is that Doug Leash, as he mentioned, came out in support of him quite early on so even though Kamali ended up losing his job and Dog Leash did it does, he does seem quite genuinely warm uh, towards Dog Leash his argument there also is that look these guys are signed Henderson turns out to be a great player so maybe his mode of, of trying to get things right takes a bit of time uh, but we don't have football supporters don't have that time you don't have time to watch Jordan Henderson flourish if he doesn't do it in the first season everyone gets really annoyed yeah I mean if you, if, if you, you need more than the problem they they had a few problems. One of them was that the, the best player they signed, Suarez, had a d- disastrous. Uh, you know, we don't need to we don't need to revisit all the things that went wrong 
with his kind of first full season at Liverpool. But there was there were there were things aside from what was what were happening um, in the game. Let's say that uh, conspired to um, essentially. I don't think he was in a position to really help the team out, which a team which really badly needed him. There was all field reasons, which well, things that happened on the field which resulted in you know the racism thing and whatnot. Um, that wasn't great, obviously. He was the best player and wasn't, I don't think, able to, to show that to the fullest extent. Henderson, you know, they were all struggling together. They were all kind of failing together. And obviously Carroll was, was a bit of a disaster. Everyone could see that. So that uh, that ultimately, Kamali, I don't think, could could escape that. Um, it caused, uh, you can't have two, you can't have that many people and none of them play well in the first season. In the reasonably short term, I think the most obvious a part of uh, the most obvious way that uh, technology can influence t- teams' performances, whatever about how it's covered in the media, is and was mentioned there by Commodity, was mentioned elsewhere in this web summit, using live fitness data, l- using live data full stop from games. I mean, that can't be more than a year away where just the stuff that you're looking at after the game is actually, well, it already is accessible to a certain extent during the game, but accessible to the point that the manager sits down with the data analytics guy and they look at it and they say, right, this guy comes off, this guy goes on. Maybe it is being done already, actually. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised but if, it's not, if it was talked about everyone. If it is being done, everyone's keeping a little bit quiet for the time being. I mean, that, that you know, the, one of the things that was brought up is this idea that fans should have access to that information. You know, I thought this is... This is kind of a little bit intrusive at this stage, you know. Uh, Guy Easterby had mentioned that in his thing, you know, this idea of publishing that stuff to the fans. And he was like, well, look, we're not so sure about that yet. Yeah, that was along the lines of the conversation that we had last week about how invasive TV can be now with these on-field interviews during the game, all those kind of things. Get a camera in the dressing room. Um, You know, get get them in there and let's see what they're all doing in there. Easterby saying, well, no, we kind of still think that that's a space that you've earned the right to be in. It's a private, it's a personal space, and we don't think it, we should be selling it. Having said that, we in rugby are perhaps not at the same uh, sophisticated uh, state of development in this particular area, and there may there's plenty of time and plenty of room for uh, for us to uh, get more sophisticated. So who knows? All right, that's it from this do uh, this show. I should say, do have a listen to our second show today. I uh, chatted to Tony Hawk. Uh, who's also in, in Dublin for the Web Summit. The uh, man has made a lot of money out of skateboarding over the years and various con- uh, various concerns related to skateboarding, including his Tony Hawk, his video game, which is one of the most popular of all time. But uh, you'll hear that chat a little bit later on if you haven't listened to that one. Thanks very much. I want to thank um, Ken. I'll thank you first. Thank you, Aaron. Murph will also thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks to you too. Thanks, Ken. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks for listening. Check out our website, secondcaptains.com, and we'll talk to you again. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.